You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We are finishing up our sermon series this morning, uh, which we've titled Living Hope. We've been going through First and Second Peter, and it's been great. I've enjoyed it. Hopefully you guys have. Hopefully you've learned a lot, uh, as I have. And um, today's passage is, is, I think, a beautiful conclusion to the whole thing, um, as it reminds us of our hope that's to come, while grounding us in the life that we're called to live as we wait for that hope, as we wait for that hope. And there's we're going to go through all of Second Peter chapter 3, uh, so we're going to be here for a couple hours, so you get enough of me before the summer. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It won't, it won't be a couple hours. Um, I won't get a chance to touch on everything in, in chapter 3, unfortunately, but um, we're going to read the whole thing, and then, and then uh, yeah, it'll be good. It'll be a good conclusion. So Second Peter chapter 3, if you want to turn with me to starting in verse 1. And Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 
All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being with us this morning, Lord God, that your presence is here, Lord God, that you desire to be with us, that you desire for us to know you in in a deeper and greater way, Lord God. And as we go through your word this morning, may may that come to pass, Lord God. May we we grow in in grace and knowledge of who you are, Lord. And as we do that, Lord God, that you would mold us and refine us into who you've called us to be. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there's some things that test my patience more than others. And one of them often occurs when I'm traveling down the highway with my family on a road trip and we're only an hour into an eight-hour travel day when it's obvious we haven't arrived at the intended destination yet, but one of my kids decides to ask for the 10th time already, you know, how long until we get there, right? Or they ask the cliche phrase, you know, are we there yet? Even though it's a cliche phrase, it's still a real thing that occurs way too many times every time we go on a trip. And yes, it tests my patience. Because no, obviously, we're not there yet, right? But it's okay, because I I never lose my cool. Except I do, because I'm not perfect. So I repent of that. But thankfully for us, God is a better father than I am to my kids, because he's patient with us always, even when we're impatient with him. And that's a blessing, because let's be honest, from our perspective, when it comes to to God delivering on his promises for us, when it comes to God answering our prayers, when it comes to asking God for his direction and calling in our lives, and we're waiting for him to respond and and point us in the right way, or or in those times where we're we're going through hard times in our lives, and, and and it feels like forever, right, for God to come through, right? Sometimes, sometimes it feels like God is taking way too long to answer our prayers or to come through for us, right? And we get impatient. And so we too often find ourselves impatiently asking God, you know, are we there yet? Now, Lord? Or or in the same vein as the psalmists and prophets, we, we, we cry out to him, how long, O Lord? How long must I suffer? How long must I work this dead-end job? How long until you open that door for me? How long until you answer that prayer? How long must I wait? And really, that's it, isn't it? We don't like waiting. Right? We don't like waiting very much. I think of this, though. Just under 2,000 years ago when this letter was written, life moved a lot slower than our lives do. They were used to waiting a long time for things. And yet, they still struggled with waiting on God. But I think it's worse for us today. Because, because we get pretty much everything we want right now, right? We all know that. We get everything we want right now with our Amazon Prime two-day shipping or Cineplex Theater Prime seating so we don't have to wait in lines or prime rate loans so we can buy now and pay later. Pretty much anything with the word prime on it reminds us in our culture today that we dislike and we're unwilling to wait, right? But it, we don't like waiting for things. And, and, it, and I'd argue that, that in these days of fidget spinners and iPhones and Instagram and all those things, we don't really know how to wait. And we especially don't know how to wait patiently. In fact, they've done studies. And just wait. 
is one of the top ten phrases I say to my kids. Well, they haven't done studies on it. But if they did do studies, they would find that just wait is one of the top ten phrases that I say to my kids. Because waiting is hard. It's easier said than done. And not just for them, but for all of us, right? Again, waiting is hard. Waiting is long. Waiting is boring. And quite often, the longer we have to wait, the less likely we'll stick around or the less hopeful we are in whatever we're waiting for. Right? None of us, none of us ever stand in the longest line at the grocery store. Right? We even jump to another line if it looks like it's moving faster. We don't like to wait. And this is currently the problem that the Apostle Peter is addressing in the conclusion of his second letter here, this difficulty of waiting. More specifically, the difficulty and even long-suffering of the Christian life when it comes to waiting for the hope of God's ultimate and eternal promise. As he writes in verse 13, he says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this verse speaks to us too, right? Because as Christians, we're all waiting for this promise still. We're all waiting for our living hope, for Jesus to return victoriously in righteous judgment, when all things will be restored according to God's purpose, when heaven and earth will be made new, when we'll be raised up with him in resurrection life and made new with heaven and earth, right? That's our living hope. But sometimes the longer we have to wait, especially in this broken and sinful world, Right, that hope can start to feel less, li- less alive and actually become more uncertain. So Peter's goal and his conclusion here and some of his last written words before he dies for his faith is to remind his readers and us, all Christians, of this eternal hope that we have through the victory of Jesus Christ. His goal is to stir us up so that we don't forget the promise of God, so we don't lose hope, so that we can keep our eyes and our hearts on the finish line, so to speak, so that we can stand firm in our faith as we wait. But the challenge that Peter's facing here, though, as, as we've talked about previously in both First Peter and Second Peter, is that he knows that he's not the only voice that's speaking to these Christians. And he's certainly not the only voice that's speaking to us today either. Verses 3 and 4 go like this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Scoffers will come with scoffing. I don't know why I translated it like that. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So whether these, whether these scoffers are people that are just going to be mocking these Christians for their silly belief that Jesus is coming in, or, or whether it's false teachers trying to convince them otherwise, in fact, it's probably both. He's probably referring to both, as we've seen in First and Second Peter. Right? But regardless of whoever these scoffers are, they're going to come with scoffing. Right? Basically, they're, they're whispering tauntingly and yelling mockingly in the ears of these Christians and saying, oh, Jesus isn't coming. Right? And since he's not coming, you might as well go ahead and live, live whatever kind of life you want. Listen, they say, nothing, nothing's changed since the beginning of time. Nothing will ever change. So don't hold your breath for it. 
In other words, according to them, there's no end times, right? There's no future hope. There's nothing to live for except indulging in our desires right now while we have the chance. According to these scoffers, we're waiting for nothing. And the temptation for some of these Christians, I think, and even for us today, is to believe them. To start thinking, yeah, what am I, what am I waiting for? Is Jesus even going to come? And for us, you know, it's been 2,000 years. So first of all, Peter's argument here in his conclusion is to remind us that the day of the Lord will come, as God's promised. And he says we, we can trust that and be confident in that because God's had a perfect record of, of being faithful to his promises so far. Also, the evidence, uh, there's evidence that the world has changed. God created the world. He says, well, these scoffers, they deliberately like to ignore that, right? Because they want to justify their sinful lives. So they ignore the evidence. But Peter also points out that even more than that, there's actually supposed to be value and purpose in the time that we're called to spend waiting for that promise. To me, what he writes in this passage echoes the prophet Isaiah, who, who declared uh, in Isaiah 40:31, he says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They who wait for the Lord shall mount up with wings like eagles. They who wait for the Lord shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Right? The victory that we find in God, the strength, the hope, the endurance, and the direction in our lives is found when we wait on Him. You see, there's value and there's purpose in waiting. But we'll only find value and purpose in the waiting if we're trusting in the one that we're waiting for. Right? So, so as we wait for Jesus to come again... But also in the same vein as we wait for smaller things like, like answers to prayer or for his direction in our lives or as we wait for God to come through for us in the midst of trials and, and suffering, whatever it is we're waiting for, as we wait for the Lord, first of all, do we trust him? And secondly, do we trust his timing? Do we trust his timing? That's the thing we often have problem with. Because like I said before, sometimes it feels like God is taking way too long. And we don't get it, and we get frustrated, or we, or we lose hope, or we give up waiting, and we start to believe the scoffers. But Peter points out very clearly that God's not taking too long. In fact, he's taking just the right amount of time. And even more than that, that it's not actually about us being patient with him at all. It's about him being patient with us. Do we get that? It's not about us being patient with him. It's about him being patient with us. Second Peter 3, 8 to 9 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a, as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So he's saying with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, right? And, and some people might be tempted to read that literally and start doing a math equation about how many, how many days, you know, whatever, I don't know. But this most likely isn't a literal math equation here. Rather, Peter is reminding us that God is outside of time. That God is sovereign. That because he's outside of creation, he's not bound to the confines and movement of time like we are within creation. So what, why is this significant? Why would Peter bring this up all of a sudden? It's simple, because it means that God's never late. That God's never early for anything. His timing is perfect because he has the full picture of time. Do we get that? It's hard to wrap our heads around. But his timing is perfect because he is the full picture of time. He knows the exact moment to answer our prayers. He knows the exact moment to intercede for us. He knows what we should be praying for, even when we don't. Right? And he knows the exact moment to provide for our needs. In the same way that he knew the exact moment to send Jesus Christ to take our sin upon himself at the cross. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. Not too early, not too late, not at the wrong time. At the right time. God's timing is perfect. He knows what will be, and so he knows what we'll need and how to prepare us for what's to come. And therefore, if God has made a promise, then he'll come through with that promise. And he'll come through with it at the perfect time. I think too often, though, we prefer to Abraham it instead. And what I mean by that is we often try to speed up God's promise. And I call it Abrahaming it because Abraham tried to speed up God's promise of having a son with his barren wife, Sarah, by impregnating instead his maidservant, Hagar, and having a son with her. Right? But this son, as we found out, his name is Ishmael, he was not born of the promise. He was born in disobedience. Right? Because Isaac would be the promised son, born to Sarah. But Ishmael was born only because Abraham didn't trust God's timing. He, he tried to speed up God's promise. He tried to move it ahead. Based on his own understanding, based on his own plan, based on his own timeline. And just like that, I think we often try to force God into our own timelines, right? Rather than acquiesce and trust in his timeline, rather than waiting on the Lord, we try to pull God into our plans, into our timeline. I have a dog named Taylor. When the young adults were all at our house for supper a couple months ago, they, they absorbed Taylor, and she was loving it. Um, but she's full of energy. She's really hyper. And I, and I don't really enjoy taking her on walks. Because for the first block, or sometimes even for the first four blocks, she pulls the leash, like, as hard as she can, and she drags me along, right? And I'm walking like this, I'm trying to act natural, walking along, you know, as cars are driving by. 
You know, I'm just pull, being pulled along, and it's super embarrassing. And even when she's, like, choking from the collar, like, like this, you know, because she's pulling the leash, and she's like, <laughs> and she's still pulling me along. Like, she does not stop. And, of course, the problem there is, is, is that she doesn't know where she's going, right? She doesn't know the path that, that I've decided to take, right? And I also don't want to run when she tries to, tried to speed me up and, and, and lead the way. The problem there is that I'm the master in that situation, right? Not Taylor. She's the dog. I'm the master. I set the pace. I set the direction, right? And in the same way, we try to pull God into our timeline, don't we, into our desires, into our plans. We're like, hey, God, in two months, this is my plan, so bless it, please, right? That's what we do. Or, or we're like, hey, God, uh, I'm kind of like debating whether to do plan A or plan B. So if you could just tell me which one is the right one, that would be great. And then when it doesn't work out, we get frustrated or we get impatient. We blame God. But in both scenarios, right, we may think that we're seeking God. But we're actually just trying to pull him into our plans and into our timelines. So we have to ask ourselves in our lives, are we actually seeking God for his plan in our lives? Or are we trying to pull him into ours? Proverbs 69 says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In other, in other words, well, we're being stupid and stubborn and impatient, making our plans with really no idea of what's in store for our future. God's the one who's patiently waiting for us to wait on him, to seek him, to allow him to change the desires of our heart. He's the master in this situation, not us. He's sovereign, not us. He sets the pace, not us. And that's why it says in verse 15, thankfully that we can count his patience as our salvation. Right? Because if God wasn't patiently waiting for us, and patiently loving us, and patiently pursuing us, then, then we'd be lost, right? We'd be toast. So why, why wouldn't we go to him? Why wouldn't we surrender to him? As Peter points out, he's sovereign over our lives. He has our best interests at heart. He's been perfectly faithful thus far in his promises. And obviously he thinks we're worth it, right? He sent his son to die at the cross so that we can come to him. Because he desires that none should perish. He desires that all should know him. He's being patient with us so that we can know him and come to him. Because according to his ultimate promise, those who do know him have a glorious and eternal future waiting for them when Jesus returns. He's not slow. He's not slow. He's patient. Again, with that knowledge, why wouldn't we go to him in humble repentance? Why wouldn't we trust in him? Why, why wouldn't we surrender to his timing? Personally, I've learned this lesson the hard way. When I graduated Bible college, I, had a, I graduated with a BA in religion and theology. And I felt like I was ready to take on the world, right? 
I was under the impression that if God had called me into ministry, then, then as soon as I, I held that degree in my hand, that he'd open the doorway for me and send me right in. But as I found out, he had a different plan. And looking back, I realized that like most Bible college grad students, no offense, I realize now that I was probably too ignorant and maybe a little too prideful to go in, into ministry at that time anyways. God needed to work on me first. And God knew that, but I didn't, right? He also knew that the perfect he also knew the perfect timeline for my life. He also knew when he would place me into ministry. I didn't. And through those 5 years, it felt like God was taking forever. Or let, or even letting me down. But when I look back now, again, I can see the way God used that time to prepare me and then plant me into ministry. It's crazy. I'm not standing on this stage right now because of my plan. Nothing about this was my plan. It was all God's plan. And I'm thankful that he was patient with me. Because as I look back, I have to say that I wasn't very patient with him. Right? Five years of sending out resumes with no callbacks. Five years of trying to pry open my own doors and pathways into ministry. Five years of paying off a student loan that I'm still paying off. And angrily wondering why I wasted all that money, wasted all that time. Four years of my life getting this useless degree that I'm never going to use. Frustratingly wondering why, why God had called me to Bible college only to get stuck in dead-end jobs. right? Impatient, and, and impatiently and angrily wondering why God was taking so long to come through with his promise to me. right? I was actually ready to, to, to give up on God's supposed call for me. And I, and I was looking to go back into school. Get a degree in something else. But God, who's faithfully sovereign, full of grace and patience, knew when I'd be ready. He knew how to make me ready. And he knew when I'd be needed to fill a position here at the gate. I had no clue about any of those things. But God knew. And he was patient with me. And so among many other things in those five years, I learned two very important things. First of all, that God is perfectly faithful to his promises. So we can trust him, and we can trust his timing, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. He's patiently waiting for us to trust in him. I didn't deserve it, but his patience with me was my deliverance. And I've learned to trust him. That's the first thing I learned. And secondly, I learned that God has a purpose for everything, especially, especially in seasons of waiting. When we think of waiting, when we think of the word waiting, if you're waiting for somebody, I don't know about you, but I get this picture of just looking out the window and, and standing there just waiting for Jesus to drive up the driveway. You know, just standing there just waiting for him, looking out the blinds, wondering when he's going to show up. It's kind of the, the picture that I get when I think of the word waiting for Jesus. But as we wait for Jesus to come again, that's not the picture that Peter has in mind here as he writes this letter. Again, he's reminding us that there's purpose and there's value in the waiting. We're not called to sit around and wait. 
Right? Waiting on the Lord isn't doing nothing. We're called to both do and be as we wait. And sometimes waiting on the, on the Lord is, is resting and, and sitting and listening to him. That's also not doing nothing, right? We're called to do and be as we wait. In other words, it's not just about what we're waiting for. It's about what and how God desires to work in us, prepare us, and change us in the midst of waiting. That's almost just as important. So the next question we have to ask is, so what are we supposed to do? And who are we supposed to be as we wait for Jesus to come again? Or even as we wait for God to fulfill other promises and prayer requests in our lives. Who are we supposed to be? And what are we supposed to do as we wait? And there's four points here that I'm going to go through really quickly. I made sure it was a longer sermon because it was about being patient and waiting. So that's part of the lesson, okay? So as we wait for the Lord, number one, this is what we're called to do. We're called to live righteously. Verses 11 to 13 say that since all these things are thus to be dissolved, right, the earth will be made new, heaven and earth will be made new, all the old things will pass away. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We've gone through a few messages on this topic already during the sermon series, so I'm not going to go into too much detail here. But it's also, it's also pretty straightforward, right? Jesus is coming again, and until he does, we're called to live holy and obedient lives in accordance with the gospel that saved us. It's pretty straightforward. We're called and even filled with his spirit in order to live like Christ and proclaim his kingdom. And that's, that's really what it means to hasten the day of the Lord, right? To proclaim his kingdom come and to make disciples of all nations. So first of all, while we wait, we're to live for Christ and bring people to him. Which leads us to the next point. As we wait on the Lord, we're to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Verse 17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... That Jesus is coming. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So no matter who makes fun of us for believing that Jesus is coming again, no matter who tries to sell us a different ideology or belief system system that denies our living hope, no matter what circumstances or temptations we face that try to try to make try to make us give up waiting or try to pull us into sin. No matter what, if we have our eyes and our hearts set on the living hope, on the coming Christ, we cannot and will not be moved. As we wait for that day, Peter writes, take care not to get, get um, carried away. Take care not to lose your stability. In other words, keep your feet on a solid rock, on the hope and salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the third thing we're called to do while we wait on God. We're called to grow. As I said before, we're called to grow. 
first part of verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's just a tagline at the end of the, of the book. We always read the, these phrases as taglines. No, this is a commandment. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, as, a, I've, as I've learned in my own experience, and as we see with most of the, the people or, or heroes or whoever, whatever you want to call them that God calls throughout Scripture, quite often God wants to prepare us for what we're waiting for before he gives it to us so that we're ready when it comes. So that we trust in him when it comes. And then the case of Jesus coming again, when he comes like a thief, as it says, like we don't know when he's coming. It's gonna, it, it feels like it's taking a long time, but then all of a sudden it's going to come just like that. So Peter's reminding us here to be found by him as those who are prepared, as those who are ready and waiting and watching for him. As it says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Right? And that's what the waiting does. The waiting makes us ready so that we're found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Right? We often think that waiting just teaches us patience which it does, but it's way more than that. Waiting gives us time to grow in our relationship with God. It gives, it gives the Holy Spirit within us time to humble us and sanctify us. It gives us time to receive more and more of the grace of God as we relinquish more and more of our sin and pride within us. Right? The waiting gives us time and opportunity to learn how to trust more in God. It forces us to trust more in God. It reminds us that God's in control and not us. And of course, it gives us time to mature in Christ-likeness. Again, the waiting is meant to prepare us for whatever we're waiting for. So in this season of waiting, let's make sure that we're doing that, that we're, that we're intentionally and that we're intentional in seeking God and growing in him as we wait. Which leads us to the last and final point of what we're called to do while we wait on the Lord. Point number four. We're called to glorify him. We're called to glorify Jesus. Verse 18, the whole thing says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So to him be the glory now and to the day of eternity. To him be the glory now. Now. It's easy to glorify God when we get what we've asked for, right? It's easy to glorify God when we finally receive that thing that he's promised to us. And we're like, oh, thank you, God. I'll talk to you again when I need something else, right? That's what we do. But we're called to glorify him now. Even in the midst of the waiting. Which means we're called to glorify him by faith. Knowing that he's faithful. Really, we're called to glorify him as if Jesus has already come. As if we've already received the promise. That's how sure and certain our living hope is. Because if God's promised it, it will happen. And so we praise him for that. We glorify his name. But of 
course, we also give Jesus the glory now and into eternity, not just for what he's going to do, but also because of what he's done, right? Because he's the one who made all this possible. Only through him do we even inherit the promises of God. Only through him do we even have salvation. Through him, we have a living and eternal hope. Through him, we have grace and peace. Through him, we have life, and we have life abundant. So yes, to him be the glory. Not us, not our plans, not our timelines, not our works. To Jesus be the glory. Because again, as it says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were so weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. At the right time, Jesus died for us. So to him be the glory. So in conclusion then, as we wait for the day of the Lord, as, as we wait for his perfect timing, Let's remember what he did for us at the cross. Let's remember his eternal promise for us that will come and that will come at the right time. And then let's respond by waiting on him and glorifying him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Lord God. Your ways are deeper than our ways. We can't understand them. We, we can't know what's to come, Lord. We can't know what your plan is for us, Lord. But what we do know is that you are faithful. That you will never let us down. That your timing is perfect, Lord God. And that you've proven that over and over again, but especially at the cross. Jesus, that at the right time you died for us. That you gave us a chance to have salvation. That you opened the doorway so that we can know you, so that we can come to you, so that we can trust in you. So Lord, as we wait for that day when Jesus returns, when all things will be made new, Lord, and even as we wait for answers to our prayers, Lord, as we wait for direction in our lives, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit within us, Lord. Help us to trust in your timing, to surrender to you, and to use the, the time that you've called us to wait to grow in our trust in you, to grow in our knowledge of you, to grow in the grace that you've given us, Lord. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done. We thank you so much for what you're going to do. And we glorify your name. Amen.